flight styles carry our emotions in an especially powerful way and in a form that transcends borders and nations, language and culture. They can unite us across divides and help to heal bitter conflicts. When we make something, it can be an expression of our love for someone or a way to bring comfort. Fabrics can send messages about how we feel and wish to be seen. Think of the glorious Renaissance paintings of princes and princesses projecting their authority or telling us how devout they were. Well, textiles can act like an old cardigan as a potent reminder of family members who are no longer with us. Haptic and Hughes' second series was all about how feelings are bound up with textiles. But in all those stories, I never came across one in which a cloth became specifically imbued with the spirit and the soul of someone. This episode is about Yoshigaku Hinomaru flags, personal flags carried by Japanese soldiers in the Second World War, but which over the course of 75 years have become something much more powerful, the last embodiment of a long-lost relative. Keiko Zeke explains what the words Yoshigaki Hinomaru mean. Okay, Yoshigaki Hinomaru has consistence of two words. Hinomaru part is a national flag, just like American called their flag, star and stripes, or British call Union Jack. We, as a Japanese, call Hinomaru as a Japanese flag. And the other word, Yosegaki, means to gather, to write. So the summary of Yosegaki, Hinomaru, means to gather, to write on the Japanese national flag. Keiko, who is Japanese, founded the Obon Society with her husband Rex, who is American. Their mission is to bridge the gap between the families of Japanese soldiers and allied and American veterans and return Second World War battlefield textile trophies to Japan. These flags are now more than three quarters of a century old and in that time their meaning has changed dramatically. They began life as good luck symbols created by the friends and families of Japanese soldiers sent to war. They later became trophies for Allied soldiers, many of whom endured great hardship. And finally, in rare cases where they've been returned, they've been transformed again to become a way for Japanese families to welcome home ancestors they thought lost forever. This episode comes as nations across Europe and in Canada gather for Remembrance Day, where we mark those that we have lost in conflicts. It's always a time of reflection and melancholy, 
as the light fades and winter creeps in. And just to warn you, every one of the people I spoke to for this episode wept, me included. And there's no shame in that. We talked of war and death and profound feelings of loss. And if that isn't your thing, then listen no further. But I also found something miraculous and healing in this too. Something delivered by very humble pieces of cloth. Welcome to Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. My name is Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver interested in what textiles tell us about the story of humanity and in particular the meaning we attach to cloth and fabric. Keiko explains how these flags were made and given to Japanese soldiers in World War II. Before he was sent off to any of the battlefield, um, family who purchased or handmade a small Japanese nation flag, because they have surrounding the white margin um, of the part, they write their signatures or personal message encouraging for this soldier to a battlefield. So mother, wife, um, children, if they married, or friend, neighbor, relative, classmate, and if he works, maybe a company colleagues, or if he play kendo club or soccer, football, any sports team, teammate. So anybody who knows this person who cares, they write personal message and signatures and then give it to him. And when, when the soldiers went away, were they just carrying one of these flags or might they be carrying more? At least one easily, but if belong to uh, the one with a family or relative and friends, neighbors, one could be from company's colleagues, or if he's a student, he was given by the school teacher and classmate. That's another type of the flag. So we would say sometimes one flag, sometimes two or three bring the uh, multiple flag with him. And how would the soldier have carried the flag? Where would he have had it? Um, since the Japanese flag, it's very easy to fold it to make it small. And then uh, most of the soldiers, they um, keep it very close to his heart. And then he carry with him very close. So he would carry it inside his shirt or inside a pocket or something like that? Yes, yes. And did every soldier have one? How common were they? Well, um, record shows um, during the World War II, about 8 million Japanese soldiers are drafted. So easy estimate, at least one, sometimes two or three flags are carried by those Japanese soldiers we would estimate at least easily 
over 10 million flags easily uh, created it during that time. And how would the soldier have seen this flag? Would it have been a very nice reminder of people at home or would it have carried some kind of protective thoughts with it? Would he have seen it as a protection for him in battle? Above all, I would say um, this is a reminder of the loved one who care for him back home. Imagine a soldier far away from home. He's alone with a, a war buddy, other soldiers, but all away from loved one. Um, that flag written by each one of the loved one remind of him at home who he defends for why he is there so that's encourage him and also just comfort him i would imagine so that has everything spiritually you are not with them physically but spiritually all the loved one what he wanted to protect they are with him close keiko's family came from close to kyoto her grandfather was one of those soldiers who went off to fight in the war, and like hundreds of thousands of others, he never came home. My grandfather, he was no different than any other Japanese soldiers. He was just an ordinary farmer in the countryside. He had the two small children at the time and then he was drafted and then sent off to Burma and then he just disappeared without a trace so no remain nothing came back and the family didn't know what happened to him at all except Japanese government sent a death notice to my grandmother so um, my grandfather, um, we know he was killing action in Burma, but nobody knows exactly what happened to him, how he died, and how he died and where exactly he died. Within Japanese culture, there's great respect for a family's ancestors, and it's important to visit and to maintain their graves. But the deaths of these soldiers in unknown places made that impossible. My childhood memory, each summer season, um, we call Obon season. That, as Japanese, we believe ancestors come back on earth to visit each family. So we cleaned the grave and then we visited to a cemetery each grave and pray for the ancestor, pay the respect and thinking of them. So that's a very much Japanese custom. Each every summer season in August, we always go to grandparents' cemetery and then visit it, including grandfather's grave. And each every time, when we visited to pray for that ancestor, my mother said, always he, she said, grandfather died in Burma and nothing came back to a family except it was sent it 
a small rock with a death notice. So the priest and the family devastated, nothing to bury in the grandfather's grave. So since nothing to bury, priest decided to bury a small rock in his grave. So my mother, I, I clearly, it, it just sunk to my brain. Oh, so Japanese custom is we cremate the bone. So that's very important for the Japanese custom, but there's no bone, there's nothing. So, so my mother said, there's nothing, but just a small rock is in that grandfather's grave. Keiko says this wasn't talked about in Japanese society, and it was a long time before she realized that many other families went through exactly the same thing. They too lost fathers and brothers, uncles and sons, and instead of remains, they received a rock or a piece of wood, or sometimes a small bit of coral. Rex Seke, Keiko's husband, was amazed by this the first time he heard it. I, I was just stunned to hear this story of her grandfather having been drafted and sent to Burma and disappeared without a trace. Just gone. Nothing. In fact, she told me that the story she was told that her mother had heard from her mother, so the, the grandmother, was that she received a letter in the mail from the government some while after uh, the husband had left. And along with this letter, which was announcing his death, there was a box, a small box. And I interpreted it to be like the size of maybe that a wedding ring would come in, a little small, little like maybe one inch or two inch square box. And inside of the box was a stone, just a little pebble. And, and I realized that this was the Japanese government's way of informing a family that not only the person had died, but that there would be no remains coming back. Rather than write in the letter that he is missing in action or there's no trace of his body found, or you can just forget about expecting any bones to bury, they would send a, a, a rock to the family. And that, they could figure out, if you got a rock, that means there's, there's nothing coming home. And for more than 60 years, that was that. In Japan, hundreds of thousands of soldiers went missing or were taken prisoner at the end of the war. And as Rex explains, many mothers went on hoping year after year that their sons might come home. In the years after the war, the women of Japan would get news that a ship was coming in. And they would all go down to the dock and wait to see this ship come in. And they would see the people get off the ship and they were looking for their missing sons because some 
had been held captive up in Russia. Some were down in the South Pacific Islands holding out. Some were being held prisoner here or there or wherever. And so the soldiers didn't come home quite like our soldiers came home, but they trickled in over the course of years and years. In fact, in 1955, Russia is still releasing back to Japan captive soldiers they've held for 10 years alive. So these mothers would go down along the dock and watch every ship and stand there as the people come off the gangplank waiting for their son. But in 2007, something dramatic happened in Keiko's family, which started with a phone call to her uncle. Well, it was a uh, year 2007 in summer. After 62 years from the end of the World War II, in the middle of nowhere, we have no idea how, but somehow my uncle received a telephone call. And this telephone call was saying, do you know such this name? And that my uncle had never heard his father's name for many number of years. And then my uncle said, well, that's my father's name. How do you know? Then that person said, well, I have something here. And if you like to have received, we'll be happy to send it to you. So here they are in the middle of nowhere. My grandfather's flag, Yosegaki Hinomaru, was returned to my uncle happened to be the same house where the grandfather resided in the countryside. He suddenly received, and then that was a surprise to entire whole family, my uncle, my mother, entire whole family. Rex says it took time to unravel the story of how this flag had actually been returned. And it casts a great deal of credit on a very determined set of hotel staff who had Keiko's grandfather's Hinamaru flag left with them by the son of a Canadian veteran. This Canadian man who, on a business trip to Asia, had arrived in Tokyo airport for a layover for several hours, jumped in a taxi, went to a hotel, and handed the hotel staff a flag. That and then said, find his family. My, my father had this and he wants it to go back to the family. And then he left. And his hotel staff spent, I don't know, six or eight months putting notices in newspapers and whatever. And somehow through diligence and kind of this unusual name, they were able to trace this object, this flag she talked about, back to her uncle. For Keiko and her family, though, this was more much more than the return of a piece of cloth. It was as though their grandfather had finally found his way home. It's it. It's not the flag. My mother said, finally, grandfather came back home. His strong spirit really wanted to come back to see a family. So she said, finally, he came home. So I wouldn't say it was not a flag. It was a grandfather's spirit 
grandfather himself. My mother and uncle, they do not have any memory of their own father. But something still exists this world after 62 years took time. But grandfather finally came home. So I would say that that was not the flag. Keiko's uncle keeps his father's flag at home. His father's name is clearly legible and it contains the signatures of many local friends, some of whom did come home from the war and one of whom Keiko remembers as a child. The family still don't know any more about how their father and grandfather died or where, but they do know that his flag ended up in the possession of a Canadian soldier and that this soldier's dying wish was that it should be returned to Japan. So all the miracle of the dot connecting and finally um, came to, to my family. So we don't know anything about what the truth, but what we knew or my mother said, it was a miracle. So absolutely a miracle. The strong spirit of the grandfather made this miracle. Somehow the flag survived. And then I still remember first time I saw the flag. I expected something maybe blood or torn apart or uh, the middle of the jungle and the wet so that the flag was very bad condition and dirty or who knows what I would expect is something really bad condition and exactly opposite with my huge surprise when I first time see grandfather's flag was so pristine white writing was clear and then folded it was so pristine and I could not imagine how can they survive such a clean condition it's almost a they didn't go through the battlefield. How does it happen? You know? So, so the conclusion of my family, my mother saying, this only we can put a head around is a miracle. So that was, that was, um, a, fa a, a family story. Nobody can know how flag travel all the way through around the world coming back home after 62 years with a good condition. But for Rex, Keiko's story had a different resonance. He's the son of a US veteran who fought in the Pacific. And as he heard Keiko describe this miracle, he wondered if there were other flags as well. And so she's telling me all this and in my mind, wheels are turning and I have absolutely no idea what she's talking about. And so later when I come home and I remember that story 
and I go to the computer and I start to poke around a little bit, I see one of those objects, such as this Japanese flag with, with, with black letters written on it, Japanese writing. And I see another one, and I see another one, and I go into Google Images and World War II and Japanese flag, and here are literally hundreds of pictures of American soldiers and British and Australian holding these up on battlefields as if it's like a, um, a hunter with a, an antelope that he's just shot. Here they're holding up these flags and smiling, and this whole story unfolds in my mind and I'm kind of like falling down this rabbit hole of this world of it wasn't just one only. I can remember writing to Keiko and saying that flag that came back to your mother, that was not the only one like it in the world. There are many of them. And her responding to me like, what are you talking about? And so gradually we fall into this, this world of there were thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these flags during the World War II, and they were taken, and they are being held by veterans or the families of veterans. And that gave Rex an idea. Then, when I saw the impact that the return of this single object had on Keiko's family, I said to Keiko, maybe we should try to make a miracle for another Japanese family. Maybe we should see if we can find some of these or people will give them to us and if we can trace them back to a, a, a son or a daughter in Japan. And she readily agreed, okay, let's do this. And that's how we, we began. Together they set up the Obon Society, and its mission is to receive these good luck flags and other war memorabilia acquired by Allied soldiers fighting in the Pacific, and with permission to return them, if they can, to the Japanese families of missing soldiers. It is meticulous and difficult work. So far, the Obon Society has received over 2,200 flags from Allied veterans and their families. And incredibly, they've managed to return nearly 500 of them. Some of the stories are heartrending. We have, on several occasions, helped people, facilitated, made the arrangements for them to take the objects back to Japan and um, to have that face-to-face -face meeting. One, in fact, was a, a, a World War II Marine veteran from Montana, in the state of Montana, who had recovered this on the battlefield and could remember it so vividly that he could tell you how the soldier was dressed. He could even go right down to describing how he was laying on the ground when he was discovered and how he rolled him over, whether it was the left side or right side, I can't remember, how he rolled him over and looked and realized that it wasn't shrapnel or bullets that had killed the Japanese, but it was like a shock concussion of an explosion and how he had taken this flag and brought it home. And he sent it there, his daughter sent it to us to find a family. And when we found the family, it was a shock. We found a brother and three sisters, two or three sisters still alive because they thought their brother had 
died in a, in a sunken ship by a submarine. And so the fact that he had died in a battlefield in Saipan, and here was this American who not only knew where and how he had died, but was the last person to probably ever see him, uh, it became this dynamic moment of, of these brothers and sisters who always wondered what happened to their eldest brother. And this Marine who knew. And so we made arrangements and we asked the, the Japanese, would you ever want to talk with the Marine? Oh, they would very much welcome him there to their town to hear him. And we asked the Marine, would you ever consider taking this back? Oh, ah, he'd be honored to take this back. And so we made that uh, historic event occur. And I'll tell you something that's so fascinating for me, that when that young brother is handed that flag by that Marine in this ceremony and there are a bunch of people there. He holds it up to his face. The young brother does, now a man in his 80s, holds it up to his face and it looks like he's crying into it. It looks like he's, he's weeping, but he doesn't. And, and, and we didn't understand. And then later on, he explained to us that the last time he saw his brother, they sat under a tree eating these little rice balls that they prepare called onigiri. And he was there with his sister and his elder brother eating this onigiri. And the wind was blowing and he could smell some oil that his brother had combed into his hair. And that fragrance of that hair came to him. He was like 14 years of age at the time. He could smell his brother's hair oil and he remembered that smell for those 80 years. And so when he picked up that flag, that textile, his first thought was to see if he could smell his brother. Everyone must have been in tears. I mean, the Marine himself must have been in tears. He, he's a Marine and he's very stoic, but uh, yes, he, he it was it was very, very emotional to uh, for, for everyone. Um, it was yeah, it was a very, very emotional moment. Rex says the custom of taking battlefield souvenirs is as old as war itself. And in the Pacific, Allied soldiers were under orders to search enemy combatants. So there was uh, instructions of everybody on the battlefield to search every deceased Japanese and go through their pockets looking for something of importance for the war. And then where that intersects the idea of the young man from Kansas or Michigan or Florida who's never seen a Japanese person in his life. And here are these objects that he's carrying in his pocket that are so exotic, whether it's a fountain pen or a, a, a letter or whatever with this odd writing that they want to bring home to their family. And so the whole intersection of battlefield souvenirs and the taking of things and all this is, is this world that I had never ever thought of, but uh, it, it, it has consumed me for these last 13 years. Terry Stockdale is a man who knows all about battlefield souvenirs. His father was a veteran, and one night he showed his children the contents of his US Army locker. What I remember first time ever as he took us down one night as a family with my brothers and sisters and 
he opened his, he kept all his war memorabilia in a footlocker, which all soldiers did. It was a green government issue type thing. Uh, but anyway, he went through the footlocker. I remember at the time, he had quite a bit of stuff in there, photos, letters from his mother, from home, and it's from his father. He also had three Yosegaki Hinamaru flags. He knew they weren't battle flags, you know, and all that. He knew they were uh, personal messages from home. The soldiers knew that. He called them good luck flags. So anyway, um, just intrigued by these flags because they're, I mean, they're works of art. If you ever, you'll need to see, look at one someday up close because you'll see how, really how pretty they are. I don't know what intrigued me to these flags, but the, the Japanese flag's simple and beautiful in itself, I think, just a white background with a rising sun on it. Just by itself, I think it's a nice flag. Um, but um, just with, uh, just, but the flags, my father had the interesting thing on them. One of them had blood on it, so and as a kid, that attracts you. You know, what's the story behind that, for sure? But the more interesting thing on there was just the scripts, the, the Japanese writing, just beautiful. Like, um, I don't know, that's maybe what intrigued me on them uh, more than anything. And knowing that it was personal names on there, so that's kind of my earliest memories of the flag. Terry's father had been in the U.S. infantry for three years. His story wasn't an unusual one in America at the time. During the Depression, he, he just graduated high school, nothing to do. So he joined the National Guard in Montana. It's just a local uh, military thing. And he shipped off to Fort Lewis, Washington. And when he was in basic training is when Pearl Harbor happened. So that started the whole that so he was shipped off pretty much immediately after they trained went to, they went trained in Australia then they went straight to New Guinea and fought in New Guinea in around 42 somewhere in there and fought all the way up to the Philippines till 45 so he spent a lot of time he was combat too so he saw the worst when Terry's father died in 2001, Terry took two of the Hinamaru flags with the intention of seeing if he could return them. He sent photos to the Japanese consulate in Los Angeles. He even took them to the local sushi restaurant and to the Japanese department at the University of Las Vegas, where he lives. They were polite, but had absolutely no interest. And then in 2015, Terry told a Japanese colleague at work about the flags by chance. This time there was immediate interest. His colleague translated the names and messages on the flags. And with his colleagues' help and support, Terry did some local media interviews, found the Obon Society and sent Rex and Keiko his flags. I mailed it in Late August 15, and about the end of September 15, Obon had found a family already. It was, that was like, boom, like that. And then also, well, in my interview, when I was doing this online interview here in Vegas, I said, oh, it'd be nice if, if they found a family, I would, I would deliver the flag to the family. You know, just how you say things in an interview. <laughs> and not ever imagining. Uh, so... Then, but that was when Obon 
saw that in the interview, they asked me if I wanted to go to Japan to deliver the flag, and I, and I, so I said yes. From that point on, that whole episode, my head's spinning. You know, it's just, it's more like a fairy tale dream come true. Really, they found the family, and I'm, I, I couldn't say no. You know, so yeah, I was, you know, yes, I had, I packed my bags and made sure my passport was good, and and went over there. I had to, had to do it, I guess, since I <laughs> said I was going to do it. It was an emotional trip for everyone involved. He traveled to a town south of Osaka to return the flag at a local ceremony to the Kishi family. Their first reaction to me was, was at the train station when, when we were go, going down to where they'd showed up, and then that's where they both came up to me crying. And bowing and made me cry uh just like me thank me arigato arigato you know thank you thank you thank you I, I didn't know my father i had my interpreter talking to the air which was wonderful you know I, i've never i can't i have no memories of my father you know this is you know so yeah just completely the flag to them was their father and, and it was you were returning their father to them exactly yeah thank you for bringing father home Wow. Yeah. It's, that must have hit you pretty hard. Well, it's just, yeah. It's, uh, well, if, you, have you, have, if you've seen videos of me online, I'm, that's what, you know, uh, I'm constantly crying. I'm, I'm in tears right now thinking about it. So, yeah. It was, but to them, it's their father. You know, that's, it's, you know. Terry is in no doubt that he did the right thing even though other members of his family didn't agree. Certain objects affect certain people, and it's just hard to explain. This thing is better to give than receive, even though you know, I did get resistance from my family. Uh, my father really didn't want me to do it. We had discussed it, so that's not easy to do either, but it's still the right thing to do. So I would do the same thing again. It, you wish, of course, everybody would say, hey, yay, great, you know. Uh, there's two sides to every story, too. So you wish everybody would say, yeah, wonderful. But uh, no, I'd do it again. I would do it again. Plus, I was treated like a king when I was over there anyway. I, I really was. <laughs> Rex Zeki has helped to return hundreds of these flags to Japanese families and understands better than most the changing role the textile at the centre of this story has played over time. When it gets down to the flag, and I've thought about this a lot as far as a textile goes, this unique fabric has had three different lifetimes to this, with three different purposes bringing joy to three different groups. And when it was created by the mother or the wife or the family or the community and given to that young man who was being sent off to fight for his country. And you can just imagine that that young man and it's jungle, it's night or cold or hot or whatever. And he's alone. He's dug into a foxhole or he's marching or whatever. He's with all these other strangers. But here in his pocket, he's carrying the, the wishes and the signatures of everybody in his world and everybody in his life who cares about him and loves him. He's carrying that with him. And that must have given him just this tremendous amount of joy and comfort and those lonely nights. 
then you have this American or Australian or British or Canadian soldier on the battlefield finding this, digging through these pockets, finding this and holding up this, what they would call Jap flag. Here is this treasure, this souvenir like none other that they can take home. And it's first of all, a flag. So everybody's going to know what it is. And second of all, unlike a rifle or a helmet, it will be easy to transport because you can stuff it inside of a sock and, and nobody's going to steal it and you can get it back home. And then here you are in Kansas or in, in, in Melbourne or wherever, and you hold up this textile with this Japanese dot in the middle of it and all this writing. And what pride and joy and happiness it must have brought that soldier and all of his family and neighbors who would have seen this object. And so this item, this textile is bringing joy to a whole other community and group there. There it sits now in a drawer or on a frame on the wall or in a trunk somewhere or up in the attic or in the garage for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. And now it goes back to Japan and who it's going to, of course, are the baby brothers and sisters or the infant sons and daughters of that soldier. They're in their 80s and 90s. They were two years old, three years old, four years old, six years old, 10 years old during the war. And they're the ones who we now find and return these items to. And, um, and for them, it is here is this person who they had heard about that was their brother or their father, who was just a sort of, in, like in my case of my wife, just this unspoken hole in the family. And here they come back. Rex and Keiko know that in lofts and basements, in lockers and hidden away in the cupboards of British, American, Canadian, New Zealand, and Australian ex-servicemen and their families are probably thousands of other Hinamaru flags. Only last week, they unexpectedly received the tattered remains of a flag from Hazel in Britain, who says her father David, or one of his troop, undoubtedly took it from a Japanese soldier when they were fighting in the jungle. She says this information comes with a little prayer that I and my family sincerely hope it might help you repatriate this precious flag to another family still waiting. I have no illusion how my father came by this flag, but I do hope that just maybe somehow we can put a tiny piece of the horror of war to rest. Please, if at all possible, let me know if you have success, as it would enable me to finally, gently close an open door on the past. Rex knows, though, that others may not feel the same way. Well, I, uh, what would I say to somebody who has one of these objects? First of all, some of these families holding these items, this is a very precious memento of their father or grandfather's service. And his experience and the stories he told um, uh, 
makes them feel like they should keep that in his memory and in the memory of the, that, that his service. And for those people who feel that way, that that item from that Japanese person is important for their own feeling of comfort in their heart, I think they absolutely should keep that because we do not want to disrupt that harmony within that family and that feeling of how they regard their father or grandfather or uncle. Now, for the other people who can separate out their uncle or grandfather's service from this object, and for the people who actually can extend their compassion towards the feeling of another family, like my wife's mother, who never knew her father, and would like to bring that joy, that, that feeling of comfort just to another human, of connecting them with a lost and missing family member. For those people, they can, we welcome them to mail those objects to us, and we will do our very best to find that family and get it back to them. For Keiko, this is about family. So, it is, bottom line is, this is not about Japanese. This is not about American. This is not about British. This is all about family. And this is about humanity. Everybody has a family. So when you have missing in action, somebody disappear without a trace. Family has a hole in the heart. And everybody, you, you can imagine. So I don't really think what we return it is we are doing Japanese or we are doing this beyond of Japan and America. I would say this is absolutely everybody has a family. We care for the family. I think is that somewhere exactly opposite to war. After the war ended, I wanted to achieve this peaceful world around the world through returning the flag. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hue. Thanks to Terry Stockdale and Rex and Keiko Zeke for speaking so deeply and feelingly about their experiences. Rex and Keiko's work is entirely funded by donations. They offer their help entirely free to flag holders and to families as they believe both have suffered enough. If you would like to know more about it or to see some pictures of them and the flags described in this episode, you can find that on Haptic and Hughes website at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. I need also to thank Penny Hummel, a listener who first spotted this story and alerted me to the existence of these extraordinary spirit flags. Thank you, Penny. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas, 
then generously fund this podcast via Buy Me A Coffee. If you'd like to contribute, you'll find the button on our website at www.hapticandhue.com. We'll be back on the first Thursday of next month with something slightly different for the last month of the year. An interview with the author of Our Choice for Haptic and Hughes Book of the Year for 2022. Think embroidery, Renaissance, France and a tragic life. Join us on the first Thursday in December. Meanwhile, I'll leave you with two verses from Lawrence Binion's Ode to Remembrance. They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their faces to the foe. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them.